I should have mentioned in our announcements, I neglected to mention our evening service tonight. Pastor Light is back with us after a couple of weeks away. He'll be speaking tonight, and that will be a communion service tonight at 6.30. We invite you to be with us. Look once more with me at Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read a, a much larger block of this text through verse 19 today as we now begin to move into the description of God's creation. We just sang about it in a fine modern hymn, God's immensity and creation. I'm going to just go through what the text describes as the fourth day of creation at verse 19. So let me begin once more at the first verse and read through verse 19 of Genesis 1. This is God's revealed Word made known. He chose to have us know these things about what He did even before man was in place to witness it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let there be, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and morning the second day. And God said, let water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters He called seas And God saw it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw it was good. And there was evening. There was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. God saw it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. This is God's holy word. Father, humble us before it. You gave us these broad pictures of wonders coming together. May we approach it in an attitude of praise and wonderment. 
for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you understand that before Genesis 1-1, there was no time? There was only the eternal God in the grand mystery of His being. There were no years, no calendars, no clocks, no time. It's a basic tenet of Einstein's theory of relativity that time is the fourth dimension of our three-dimensional universe. Physicists generally accept Einstein's theory and believe it to be sound that if there is no matter or energy, there also is no time. And so when God created the universe, and as we've read here, judged it to be good, beneficial, time was part of what he put his blessing upon. He saw it as a great benefit and eventually, of course, to we human beings. However, we don't always agree with God that time is a blessing, do we? We complain about it almost daily. Time seems to have that way of getting lost, you know? You say, I just cannot find it. I can't find the time. I know I should be doing this or doing that as an obligation. This would be good for me if I did it, but I can't find the time. It just loses itself somewhere, drops into the cracks. And it's time, too, that we're moaning at as we study the mirror every day that reflects back our own personal image. And we see that relentless march showing up in our faces and our bodies as they change and decline, and we say, what has time done to me? And then eventually we all know that there's going to be that place at the end of life when death awaits us, like a great tolling of the bell of time. Viewed this way, you could say time seems more like an enemy than a friend or something good. And yet God created it to give our lives structure and shape. Now, as I began to explore this vast subject, I realized there are literally dozens of avenues we could talk about in terms of how time impacts human lives. And I'm going to, before I finish this morning, I hope, give some personal aspect of this, but more so today, our main consideration is going to be to see how time may have been operative in the creation process. Last week we saw that only God ever makes something from nothing. And so in the truest sense, only God is a creator. We are craftsmen. We take already created things and turn them into other combinations. But we don't create from nothing. I looked briefly at verse 2 that paints the first phase of creation unformed and uninhabited and dark. And that wonderful testimony there that the Spirit of God was the caretaker and the apparent energy source and organizer that brought order out of the chaos of creation's first state. So briefly stated, one verse, verse 2, tells such an amazing expanse of things. And then we note how this by a bare word of command, as God said, let there be. Did God speak that with a voice that we would have heard? Does God have lips and a tongue and a larynx? 
We know that the Scripture is speaking in ways that we can understand. It's speaking and casting God into a human perspective so that we can have some comprehensive, uh, comprehension of what He was doing. But He expressed His will, and things came into being. Light, before there was a sun, came into being to be that first division. And then it seems like from that point on, God is dividing. He's separating one thing from the other as increased order comes out of that first state of chaos by His command, His Word. Now, remember, we believe Genesis tells true history. It tells history because it happened. We don't believe this is some kind of mythology or legend. And yet it also is not the most simplistic kind of history that that just takes events and plots them in a detailed, careful way. It's big-picture history. Yes, it is literature. It's history that's painting on a large canvas true things, and yet painting with great big strokes, not with the little detailed strokes that we would like, perhaps, to understand. That needs to be remembered as we study this passage so that we will not force it to do things that it wasn't intended to do. Now, part of the big picture here is showing us that God was working within the framework of time. Nowhere does the text actually say God created time. But it does say He began to divide light from dark, and then even from an earth-centered viewpoint, you notice that the sun and the moon are made very important. Of course, to us on earth, to Moses as a man and anyone who read his work, those were the important things in the solar system. I love the, the, the economy of Scripture when it simply says at the end of verse 16, he also made the stars. Well, that's no small task. He also made the stars, millions and billions of them. And yet, of course, this is an account from a human and earthbound perspective. So the sun and the moon are understood as being more important, you might say, for the account we're given here. I'm not going to deal so much with small details of this text today as with its big picture and how the total impact of time is seen upon the creation. Before I finish, I want to make at least one application uh, to us of how we encounter time in our dealings with God. But the big question that I'll spend most of the time on today is, is this often discussed question And it's a lot to even think of in one sermon, but I want to try to give you at least a survey in short points of how may we best understand these days, the days of Genesis chapter 1. I thought of one analogy that may or may not be useful to you, but I suppose there's a husband or two here who can identify with me and my experience. I have learned to carefully interpret my wife's language when she talks about time. I've had to be careful about this over the years. If we're both heading out somewhere, let's say we're coming to evening service or any place where we have to be together, it's a fairly usual thing that, not always, but usually I'm the first one ready. And I'll start heading for the door to the garage. 
and my wife will call out, I'll be there in a minute. Now, you may think I'm an intelligent person, but I would say that it probably took me at least 20 years of married life to finally interpret that correctly so that I wasn't pulling out my watch and looking at it secondhand and saying, she's going to be here in a minute, so in 60 seconds, she'd better be seated in the front seat of the car with the door closed. Marital harmony just says you don't want to expect that. And you don't want to push that. I quietly give her the latitude to define what a minute means. And I know it doesn't mean 60 seconds. It doesn't need to mean that. Well, that may or may not be useful as we begin to look at Genesis here. But I wish to try to look at three different viewpoints on these days and give you the pros and cons of each one. For this has been a classic subject, as you probably know, of debate, certainly between Christian and non-Christian, but also within Christianity. As fellow believers aren't always in agreement as how to understand God's Word here that they might equally revere. So the first of the three main positions for understanding these days of Genesis 1 is that the word D-A-Y equates in its simplest way to a 24-hour period of time, a 24-hour, what we would call a solar day, the day that passed between this exact time at 10 minutes of 9 and 10 minutes of 9 on Saturday morning. And that means that we're able to calculate and we're able to go from Genesis 1-3, which tells us of what was happening in the first day described here as light penetrated darkness, and then go to what happened on the sixth day, at the end of the sixth day, as Adam was created in Genesis 1.31. And we would say, we know how much time passed there. It's an easy multiplication issue. Six times 24 equals 144 hours in that six-day span. Now, we can further use the Bible to at least estimate with the genealogies, even though the genealogies of one generation to the next are not precise. Sometimes it says, you know, this person begat this person, and it's going from a grandfather to a great-grandson or something like that. But we can often construct that and understand, and we know the typical length of a generation, to make at least a calculation and say that the Bible allows us to calculate from the time of the real man, Adam, to Christ was probably a span of somewhat less than 10,000 years. There was a famous Irish bishop of a couple centuries ago who studied this issue and studied the genealogies, and he issued Archbishop Usher, issued his famous declaration that the morning of creation of the first day was 4004 B.C., And many people accepted Archbishop Usher's calculation for a long time. So for him, in other words, the whole created order was 4,004 years old. Well, I wouldn't go by his math exactly. There's no way to determine that as precisely as he thought he had done it. But there certainly are those who would say 
let's give an outside window to it and say that given the generations of mankind from Adam onward, we have to declare that the earth is probably not more than 10,000 years old. And the universe, since that seems to be the description here, if these are 24-hour periods of time. So we call folks with this position young earth creationists. Now, sometimes they're simply known as creationists and, and as if nobody else was a creationist, but that's not really accurate. These are young earth creationists. Now, if you hold that position, you obviously stand fast and clear that you are rejecting the idea of long and gradual development of living things implicit in the whole concept of evolution. I'm not going to mention evolution at all, really, today. It's a subject I hope for next time. But the Creator is believed by a young earth creationist to have made plants and animals and man all in their rather mature forms. In fact, if you get down to particulars, a young earth creationist would say, well, there was an oak tree, for example, that Adam would have approached an oak tree that, that had a, a huge trunk three feet across. And if he had sawed it down with his chainsaw, he could have counted the rings. And there would have been scores of rings that we believe are, and we know, I think botanists know this, that tree rings are added, you know, a year at a time. But, but they would say, well, God had to have created mature oak trees, And, for example, the Grand Canyon, a geological phenomenon, that couldn't be millions of years old, but rather the Colorado River didn't do all the carving. It looked rather like it does now in the young earth theory, or perhaps just with that 10,000 years of change, not millions of years of change upon it. Well, what are some of the points that favor this 24-hour day view of creation? Well, the strongest one is certainly this, that it is the most literal reading of the text. And there are people that would say they need nothing else but that. A day is a day is a day. And then, of course, the fact that it even adds the terminology evening and morning to it makes it sound an awful lot like a day that we would experience. And normally, we'll say this, the most useful way of approaching historical narrative in Scripture is to give it a literal reading unless there's something of a special nature there that would indicate otherwise. Now, there are people who would read the book of Revelation, for example, and and if it says there was a dragon in the sky ready to swallow up the woman, they believe it's talking about a dragon. Well, Revelation's a special kind of literature that's speaking symbolically. Is there any reason to think Genesis is speaking symbolically here or figuratively rather than literally? Folks who hold this view would say, no, it's literal. That's the best path of interpretation. Another positive element on their side is to say that it certainly is within the power of God to accomplish this. You see, there are some people who ridicule the 24-hour day, and they say, well, how ridiculous. You know, you couldn't, that couldn't happen in that short period of time. Well, I'm sorry, it could. We're talking about the power of God. If he wants 24 seconds or 2.4 seconds, he can do that because it is within his power. So certainly on the side of this view is the fact that you cannot call it impossible if we're talking about the all-powerful God who is the source of creation. What might be any negative arguments against this 24-hour day issue? 
Well, certainly the one that gets raised first by people is the fact that as we read this text, you see the sun, the heart of our solar system that regulates days as we know it with the rotation of the earth, isn't created on the first day or the second day or even the third day. It's created on the fourth day. And we ask the question, at least as a point, well, what does this say about the measurement of exact phases of time for those first three days if the sun was not in existence? We can't necessarily form a conclusion there, but we certainly have to raise that issue as something curious. Another negative issue would be the fact that the seventh day of God's Sabbath rest here in Genesis is not described in terminology that would seem to be 24 hours. When we come to that, I didn't read that far this morning, but if you cast your eye ahead at the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see that there is no evening and morning language given to the seventh day. And many would believe that it's actually being said here that God's unique rest, which we'll talk about at a later time, Lord willing, is an endless day. It's not a 24-hour day. It's, it's a phase when God had finished creating that he entered into for a reasonable meaning, a day of rest and for us, worship. So that makes at least the seventh day appear to be different. And then maybe a third objection, and certainly I put this third for a reason. Some people would consider this the only objection, but it is definitely third, I think, behind the others, is the fact that geology and astronomy and various ways we have of viewing and evaluating the natural creation seem to very strongly suggest in all kinds of ways of reading and dating and measuring and calculating that the earth and the stars are very, very old. Not thousands, but millions or even billions of years. I mentioned last time the most common calculation for the age of the universe. I don't know how they do this. I couldn't begin to understand it. Math was not my strong suit. But 4.5 billion years is the common scientific understanding for the age of the universe. That is outside of 24-hour creation. For example, they would say the Andromeda galaxy is the closest galaxy to the Milky Way, and yet it is two million light years away from us. Now, maybe they've got their math all wrong, but if they've got their math correct, what that means is if I am to put my eye into the lens of a telescope and see the Andromeda galaxy, I am looking at light from stars that had to travel for two million years to reach my eye. Now, of course, the 24-hour creationist wants to dispute with that and say, in many cases, that even these measurements and ways of evaluating creation must be wrong. Well, that's the view, all right? I'm just giving you the view with some positive and negative thinking about it. Without rejecting it, let's go on and look at a second position on the meaning of day. Now, this one, of course, would see the word day as more figurative. It's usually called the day-age view, day-age view. In other words, a day equals a long age or epoch or era of history. And these interpreters point out that the word day is actually used in a figurative fashion in some places of Scripture to cover a long period of time or at least an indefinite period of time. Now, let me just step aside for a second and say to you, you know, maybe your mind is, is rushing to defend things, and you're saying, aha, this is one of those liberal views. 
This is one of those views of folks who want to just open the door up and bring evolution in and say that's the answer to everything. Well, I would say there certainly are evolutionists who would have this kind of a view in their mind if they care about Genesis at all. But not everyone who takes this view opens the door to evolution, and not everyone who takes this view fails to revere the Word of God. There are many who would be actually old earth creationists. They believe that indeed the creation, the universe, the earth is very, very old in line with many of the calculations of science. And yet, they would say that Adam, as God's pinnacle of creation stamped with his own image, was not, absolutely not, the product of a simple evolving from lower creatures, that he was created whole and new, and indeed, modern man, man in the image of God, is not more than some thousands of years on this planet, not millions or billions. Well, what are the arguments in favor of this second view of non-literal, long-period days? Well, one, as I mentioned, would be the use of the word day in a non-literal fashion. The prophets speak about the day of the Lord or the day of God's wrath. Second Peter 3.8 is a very key reference. Maybe it even springs to your mind where it says, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Now, that isn't a determinative verse all by itself, but it is at least suggesting that the Lord views time differently than you do. The Lord has bigger purposes and is working those big purposes out. An objection or a negative point against this view is this, often brought forward, and people would say, look, isn't it true that in the garden when Adam and Eve fell and the curse was brought upon them, that death was introduced there, that it was said, you now shall surely die? Indeed, it said that. And these people would say, look, if you're talking about long geological ages transpiring before that, That means animals and birds and fish and everything else were dying, of course, for many centuries or even eons before the garden and the curse came. Well, indeed, old earth creationists accept that concept, and they do not see the idea that the fall in the garden necessarily talks about death coming upon animals for the first time, but rather upon man who was not destined to physically die until they had sinned don't really see that Genesis 3 absolutely requires, at least those who hold this position would say, Genesis 3 doesn't require that no animal or fish or bird had ever died before the Garden of Eden. That's a fairly simple view. I've given you enough of it to stop there. Now, without rejecting that, I haven't made a summary judgment on it. Let's look at the third one, a third view of how to understand day in Genesis 1. Now, this is similar to the second one in that it would also allow those days to be long in period. It doesn't attempt to assign any length to them. It's often called the framework view of Genesis chapter 1 because it believes that when God is speaking here and when the Scripture is revealing these periods of light and dark called days, that it's talking in a literary framework or a literary pattern without a necessary intent to describe scientifically how long these periods are. Instead, think of it this way. We have spaces of wall in between our windows. What if we had hired a a skilled painter to come in here and said, look, 
our sanctuary would be enhanced if we had each of these panels filled with something besides a, a fire alarm button that that one over there is. But uh, if, we, if we could have murals painted, in, and let's have seven of them, that would depict for us in, in some broad pictorial manner what God was doing in creation. In fact, I've actually seen something like that in the chapel of a Christian college one time that where a mural goes around quite a broad space and, and begins with, you know, asteroids and stars and all these things and progresses right down to man tilling the earth. Well, what if we said, paint us pictures here that would show us what was going on? This is what the framework view says is happening in words. In Hebrew, which was a very pictorial language, that's the way the Hebrew people thought about their language. They wanted to have a picture painted for them. And so, while we would look at language and say it's supposed to describe science for us, the Hebrew language, as Moses spoke under the inspiration of God, was more a visual language. By the way, we can see in their strength to this view in the sense that there is a kind of literary parallelism in these days. And I'm not going to go into this very much, but if you look at what happened in the first day, you can compare it to the fourth day. And if you look at the second day, you can compare that to the fifth day. And the third day compares with the sixth day, and so on. You see, the first three set the basics in place, and then the next three, number four goes back and elaborates on the first Number five goes back and elaborates on the second and so on. There is a kind of literary development that's seen in the way this is put forward. These folks in the framework view would say, look, God through Moses, let's think about what this book was written for. It was written by Moses for the Israelite people to read it, to give them not just information about the creation, but even to teach them of things to do in their lives. And what Moses was revealing here was the fact that even God, in the great work of creation, had six phases of work followed by a rest, a climax, the Sabbath. And these folks would say that the teaching of the Sabbath principle was actually a premier secondary uh, issue here in Genesis 1 and 2, that this pattern was being taught to the people of Israel, to remember the Sabbath because God himself instituted and observed it. Well, those are the three views, briefly summarized. There's much you could say that I didn't say about them. But now move to a second phase as I try to engage with the significance of God meeting humanity within created time. You say, wait a minute, you didn't tell me which position is right. I tried not to be prejudicial in depicting the positives and the negatives of each one. And I think the first point I want to make here in the second way of speaking to you about the significance of all this is to say this, that we cannot always be sure about how God uses time, especially in past ages, unless he makes that transparently clear to us. Now, some would feel it is transparently clear. Others would say we're not that sure. If you're waiting for me to tell you which of the three views of Genesis is the correct one, I want to say to you, I don't presume to have that kind of power or intellect to settle a great argument that's been here in among Christians for many, many centuries. So all I can do is tell you what I think based on 40 years of consideration. The very first Bible paper I ever wrote in freshman Bible class was on this subject, believe it or not. I still have it in my file cabinet. 
And I haven't essentially changed my view since then, although I think I've developed a lot more understanding since then and read. And please don't, you know, please don't drop off your books for me to read. Honestly, I tell you, I have a shelf. I have, if I stack them, I don't think I could reach how high the books I have. 20 Genesis commentaries, a raft of things on the scientific aspects of this. It's not that I haven't read your book. But I would favor either the day-age view or the framework view as being more accurate than making an insistence that 24-hour days might be right. I've told John Light this may be one of the first things I have to repent of in heaven. But I can tell you this, it won't have affected my salvation. I believe Genesis reports true history, but I also believe it does not intend to report it in that very specific and precise chronological way. So, yes, I am an old earth creationist. And I join many respected lovers of the Scripture. St. Augustine was the first in the 5th century. Already in 500 A.D., Augustine, who was, had so many, many wise things to say, was saying that he didn't believe these were 24-hour days. Charles Hodge, the great Presbyterian theologian, B.B. Warfield, Francis Schaeffer, The late Jim Boyce of 10th Presbyterian Church had a a gentle way of expressing himself on this in his Genesis commentary. Jim said this. He he wrote that God's creative days represent long periods of time is not only possible, I believe it is probable. Now, if you think believing in an old earth automatically equals liberalism or rejection of the Bible, I think you're wrong. No one defended the total inerrancy of Scripture with more precision or more passion than Dr. Jim Boyce. And I believe all that he did about the Scripture and its authorship by God is eternal truth. I respect Christian brothers who are convinced that Genesis says 24 hours when it says day. All that I ask of them is to not make secondary doctrines into a test of orthodoxy. Believing in an old earth does not mean you open the door for evolution to take over. We'll talk about that next time. But a more general lesson to move on to than just thinking about this issue, which we haven't settled. I don't pretend to have settled it because I've told you what I think. You're entitled to think differently. And we're brothers and we're sisters despite that difference. But a general lesson to draw here is to realize that God created time. Time is a created essence. It is not something which has always been there, that God is therefore subject to or under its control. You see, we call God transcendent. We mean He dwells outside of time. He made it, after all. How could He make a cage that He had to live in and be limited by? He's not limited by it. We call Him the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was before a beginning and the one who knows the end and will determine and unfold that end for the whole created order. I think we need a great humility to acknowledge our meager understanding of God's ways. Will we make demands of the Lord and say, it must be this way? I marvel before the statement in Psalm 33.9, where it says, He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. There's almost nothing along that line. There is nothing that I can do like that. I can't speak 
and have anything be done. I can't command and know that anything is going to come out of it that will stand. I might like to hope that I can say, I, as the great pastor, you know, everybody says, oh, really? (laughs) Why do we have to listen to you? But God speaks and it stands. He commands and it is done. There's much in Genesis we don't fully understand. There's much that we simply marvel before, the majestic work that God is doing here as he brought order out of this original darkness and chaos in creation. And to refine it even a little more as we think about ourselves as individuals living in time while God lives outside of it, you see, there's a fundamental difficulty right there. We are captives of time. He is not. We are tuned to calendars and clocks and watches. God is not. I don't know how you are about a watch. I find that many young people today don't wear watches. I started marveling at that until I asked one of them, don't you, don't you need a wristwatch? They said, cell phone. Oh, that's right. The cell phone does have the time on it. All the, it probably took me years to understand that, <laughs> why young people weren't wearing If I go out of the, watch, the house and somehow forget my watch, I am lost all day long. There's no clock in my office I have no idea what I'm doing or where I'm due somewhere or whatever. I've got to look at the computer and find out what time it is. We say I have to meet Jim at the bank at 1230 sharp, and we mean we'd better be there because Jim the banker has an appointment with us, and he doesn't want us to march in at 1240. We have this time fixity, and we carry it over into all kinds of things where we should not carry it, like our lives of prayer may I suggest. And so we believe that prayer is mainly an idea of setting up things that God ought to do and submitting them as requests and saying, now, God, I need this, and I need it by noon tomorrow. I actually read a a report of God marvelously working in a Christian ministry not so long ago where one of the people in charge, they were needing to purchase a facility for this ministry. They needed $1,000. This was years ago when you know, a thousand would really make the difference in, in a down payment on a facility. And the person in charge of the ministry prayed, felt compelled, strongly urged by God to pray, Lord, if you want us to buy this facility, send us $1,000 by 10 a.m. tomorrow when I know the mail will be here. You know the answer. They opened the mail the next day, and there was a check from $1,000 from a couple who had supported the ministry before, who said we were, a, we were both compelled and spoke to each other before we went to bed tonight, saying we believe we ought to give this $1,000 to X and send it, and it arrived. And now, you say, is that how we should always pray? I don't think so. There was a great work where God answered that kind of prayer, but that isn't the normal way God works in prayer. He's not subject to our time demands He's not subject to our, our, you know, submitting the order and expecting overnight delivery like we can get from our various delivery services today. Isaiah 65, 24 has a wonderful prayer promise. I marvel over it many times. It says, before they call on me, I will answer. That tells me something about God. It tells me that there's an eternal sense in which he fulfills prayer requests before they are even voiced. Now, some people say, if that's true, why pray then? God just knows what he's doing. He knows what we need. Let's not bother him at all with making requests. But that's not the way he wants us to understand that statement. 
What he wants us to understand instead is that we enter in prayer into a marvelous meeting with him, a marvelous dialogue whereby we are bowing ourselves before his omnipotence and learning in an adventurous encounter with him how he wants to work and how he has already planned to work. How often when we talk about prayer am I urging you to get away from the vending machine approach? that most people have when they think about prayer. I think 90% of all people who talk about prayer, if you really scratch what they're talking about, prayer is a vending machine. Put in your quarter, put in your, today it's a dollar. You don't get anything for a quarter anymore in a vending machine that I know of. It's even $2. Put in your money and get your request. That isn't prayer. Prayer is about adoration of our God marveling before him, humbling ourselves before him, thanking him, and then and only then beginning to tentatively intercede and say, oh God, I know not what I need best, but you do. If this is what I need as I have thought about it, I ask this of you, but I submit it to you. That's altogether different than a vending machine. And every Christian who comes to God in that adventure of meeting him within time and seeing eternity touch the earth knows that indeed the hymn that talks about a sweet hour of prayer is talking about something completely remarkable in all of this world. Finally, we would say this, that God's creation of time ultimately leads us to understand that his eternal preexisting Son the Lord Jesus Christ condescended to enter into the nasty stuff of humanity and time. He condescended to enter into a warm-blooded body that was capable of dying within the realm of time. You know, Jesus testified to his own eternity in John 8. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He called himself in Revelation the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. These are marvelous things. The Eternal One came into time, you see, in the person of Jesus. And so it was the Eternal Son who groaned and died and gave up His Spirit on that cross for you and me. It was a long-range goal of God as He revealed Genesis to Moses to comfort anxious, time-bound, suffering people who didn't understand what he was doing in history and comfort them by saying, I am the sovereign one who created you, who controls your destiny, and more so I've even sent my own son to come into that destiny. So the gospel of the cross is indeed the place where time and eternity intersect. They come together. And 2 Corinthians 4 tells us the truth of it, that the same God, the very same God who in Genesis 1-3 said, let there be light. When God said, let light shine out of darkness, that same God has given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Time and eternity come together in Him. And our Father, these great issues will not be settled by our finite minds. You've stretched us. You've caused us to marvel. We ask, O God, 
that you might let that marveling and that worship rest in the person of Jesus and all that he is to us. Amen. Notice.